the reason head of skilled learning was put in there is unlike our executive development that is really thinking through um, building up and succession around a core, much smaller group um, of our key executives will lead the company. The question is, well, how do we scale um, some of those awesome things? And so a lot of then what I spend my day um, doing is thinking through exactly that. How are we going to um, basically break this false dichotomy between depersonalization and scale? Um, and I'm really excited about some of the ways that actually thinking about scale in new ways has deepened the kind of personalization we've been able to offer. I'm not taking it away. That was ServiceNow Head of Scaled Learning, Thomas Igeme. And in this episode, I'm really excited to sit down with him to get his thoughts on personalization at scale as he grows ServiceNow from 13 to 30,000 employees. You know, personalization is a topic that you're going to be hearing a lot more of in the context of HR and people operations, particularly as we begin thinking more about employee experience as we move through COVID. So we're going to be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. Redefining HR one podcast at a time. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, enabling your employees to automatically receive helpful messages at key moments throughout their journey, from onboarding to promotions and everywhere in between. PIN helps companies battle communication overload and puts your employees in control over when and how they receive information. Go to PINHQ.com for more information. That's P-Y-N-H-Q.com. And reinvent employee communications for the distributed workplace. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Thomas Igeme. Thomas is the head of scaled learning at ServiceNow. You probably are very curious about what that title means, as am I, so we're going to learn together uh, as we go into this show. So, Thomas, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, why don't you start with an introduction on you for the listeners? Okay, awesome. Um, first, Lars, thank you so much for having me on here. Um, awesome, awesome to, to be able to hear and have an opportunity to connect. Um, I'm Thomas Igeme. Um, like you mentioned, um, I head up scaled learning at ServiceNow, which means I look after all our development that is non-executive. We put the world scaled in there because we're 13,000 going on 30,000. And so the big questions we're asking ourselves are, how do you create deeply personalized learning experiences that scale as the company scales? So that's what I look at. Um, I've had a very twisted um, path into HR. Um, um, as as Lars and I have mentioned before, um, so this is actually my first job in traditional HR. But I've always I've circled on um, the HR function for most of my career. Prior to this, um, I founded a startup um, in learning tech, so was selling into HR. Before that, um, I worked in product at LinkedIn on sales coaching products, so very connected to the development piece and partnering with HR there. And then in the previous life. Um, I was a management consultant um, working in strategy and org development. So um, doing a bunch of consulting with the Boston Consulting Group into heads of HR for large Fortune 100 companies. Yeah, well, it's a very interesting and uh, nonlinear path, which uh, I find fascinating. Like you, you mentioned you had circled HR as a yeah. place that you wanted to end up. Why, why was that? Like, what was it about HR that made you feel this was a... Uh, a kind of function you wanted to call home eventually? Yeah. Um, 
I was really influenced by an article I read way back in college um, on the importance of great management um, and how most of us are going to spend more time with our coworkers than anyone else. Um, and the article was basically positing um, how many marriages have failed or kids' relationships with their parents have been um, awful because we've not created great working environments. And it was a push to think of the workplace and workplace design as vocation. And that really stuck with little 22-year-old me. And it's been a vocation I'm deeply, deeply passionate about. Um, how do you create work environments where people really thrive? And obviously, HR is the place to do that. So that's one lens. The second lens um, is even, I need to go even further back. Um, I grew up in Kenya. Um, I grew up very poor in Kenya. Um, and what that meant is when I came to the US at 18, uh, with exactly $273 to my name, I remember it like it was um, yesterday, that, that number stayed in my head. It went a lot further back where I was from than it did here. Um, I really came to this country seeking a better life, um, like lots of folks. And I was extremely fortunate, um, taught myself to take the SATs. I got a scholarship to Stanford. And really, that's the opportunity that began to shift things, both for me and for my family back home. Um, and you know, the rest, as they say, is history. And so education and adult education has had this huge impact in my life. And then this idea about workplaces as places where humans thrive is also an idea I care deeply about. And the one organization that deals with both of those is HR. Yeah, that's a it's a fascinating intersection, and there's a lot. You know, I want to I want to kind of explore how all those things connect to your current role. But before we get there, you know, I know you you mentioned Stanford. I know earlier in your career you spent some time as a researcher there as well. And I'm interested. Like, has that we're in this incredibly uh, complex, multifaceted environment, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, you're working squarely at the intersection of learning and technology. Like, how did that experience in research help you kind of assess the landscape of learning, you know, and kind yeah. of separate, uh, you know, hype from substance as yeah. uh, there's a lot of hype. So how there's you, a lot of hype. <laughs> how did that um, prepare you to kind of sift through that and, uh, um, and find, find the gold? Yeah, well, Lars, you kind of mentioned the first one. I think that it, um, like, you know, research is all about the idea of looking for quantitative measurement of impact. And so that's a huge lens that I bring to learning that I think, unfortunately, is only just beginning to enter the world of learning. And so that's one thing I took from there. I think the second thing is that research is very hypothesis driven. Um, and so that's a lot of the part that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. But before you have all the data, you're sitting thinking big ideas and asking why are things the way they are? And I really think that that analytical hypothesis driven approach has, has kind of guided my approach to the world of development. I'm often asking, why are we doing things this way? How could we do it differently? What do we think are the underlying causes? And then the third piece is that research is deeply collaborative. Um, and so, you know, there's often one big name or one big book that people are aware of. But if you're in the world of research, you know that there's this army um, of research collaboration that it takes to innovate. And that's really influenced how I've approached things today. So I actually still contribute to research um, through partnerships with Stanford, MIT and Harvard, and still kind of take that lens of the right answers aren't going to be found just in my brain, but rather in the right conversations and the right critical questions that I ask with a whole assortment of people. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it, like hearing you 
describe that, it, it resonates with me uh, and it kind of connects to this concept I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is a uh, network equity, uh, mm. right? And that uh, I think especially in today's world for most professionals, particularly in, you know, quote unquote, knowledge roles, uh, your value to your company isn't just the skills and the knowledge that you possess it's the skills and the knowledge that you can tap into. And mm -hmm. I don't mean Googling, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean like knowing people who have built and done and, uh, and failed and iterated X thing at Y company that you can reach out to and be like, Hey, look, we're thinking about rolling that out here. What did you learn? What worked well? What, uh, what landmines should we look out for? So that, yeah. that, I think that, that research, particularly in the context of connecting that with networks, uh, and collaboration, I think, is uh, is a really important point. Um, yeah. I want to jump over to another role. Uh, you'd mentioned kind of your role at LinkedIn, uh, which is, again, a, a different type of role than what you're doing now and what you did before that. And, you know, LinkedIn, uh, they have a tremendous program around tours of duty and allowing, you know, people to mm -hmm. kind of, you know, move into, in many cases, completely different teams and departments. You spent four years there in uh, in a range of kind of sales effectiveness leadership roles. And I want to dig into like, what were some of your, somebody who immersed in that space? Like mm. what were some of the takeaways for you around, you know, not necessarily traditional sales, but more, more oriented around influence and like yeah. the ability to make a business, a clear business case and defend ideas and, and influence leadership, which I think from an HR perspective, really important yeah. skills that we're often not trained in. And we kind of learn on the fly. So like, what did you pick up there that you're able to kind of apply to your current role? Yeah, um, I, I definitely picked up a lot. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll think of three things. Um, and I'm a recovering management consultant. So I think in threes, there's a lot more. That's the reason <laughs> I picked that number. Um, but probably the first is the idea that you can't manufacture pain. And so the very first thing you're always trying to figure out when you're coming with your solution or your idea and you're looking to influence is where, where is the other person on, um, the person on the other side of the table already experiencing pain today? And how can I connect whatever we want to talk about to helping to alleviate that? I think that very often those of us in the world of HR, particularly because we're immersed in this stuff, we tend to be more solution than problem oriented, very clear on why this works and explaining the details there, less curious on what the pain is that's being experienced on the other side. Um, I think the second piece around it is the idea of um, metrics, right? And yeah. um, of getting very clear on what you're trying to impact. We throw around metrics today. The world of metrics in HR is not new. So, you know, talk to any HR leader, we'll be talking about metrics. But one of the things that I picked up in sales is this idea of less is more. There is a number that sales is usually always working towards and it is their quota and there's lots of metrics that lead up to that but everybody's really clear on the number that matters and why it matters as a rallying cry i think often in hr there's a whole shift of numbers we're quickly gathering around engagement but it still often feels like we're dealing with 20 different things rather than the one thing that we can focus on and so getting really not just metrics driven but aligning metrics with strategy to really ask where are we going what's the one number that's going to take us there is hugely um, important for influence because that's what allows you to tell the story of progress, but also to alert people when there's a need to change and pivot. Yeah. Um, and then maybe what I'd, I'd put as the third lesson from sales is the idea that that um, 
that it is a repeat game. Um, very often we think of it as influence as one conversation, one meeting, one presentation. One of the things that is very clear in a sales process, right, and get very specific about it, is that you jump from discovery where you're figuring out what's going on to giving a demo of what's happening to building a solution. And this idea that the relationships and influence that we're trying to build as HR leaders isn't going to be found in one big presentation or a QBR at the end. It's in those ongoing conversations, both where we not just share what we're thinking about, but really discover um, what the pain is on the other side for folks. Yeah, those are uh, good actionable takeaways, I think, for listeners in terms of building influence within your own organizations. Because you're, I mean, that that as a discipline, I think a lot, lately I've been thinking a lot about kind of education in, in HR and the kind of people ops and talent space. And mm. uh, so much of it is on the job. Uh, you know, or, you know, some, some may have formal, you know, education and kind of curriculum and university based courses, but the vast majority are primarily on the job. And those types of skills, which are really essential are just not things that we often get. So it's, uh, it's really interesting to get your take on that. Um, let's jump into your current role because as you mentioned, like your, your background (laughs) was nonlinear. This is your first, you know, quote unquote HR job. So, you know, you, you came in, you know, big company, Big job, uh, you know, on paper, you probably were not the obvious choice uh, to come into that role. So what was it about you that they saw in, in bringing you in? How did they, how did they, you know, too often I think in recruiting, we get locked into, you know, matching resumes and job descriptions and mm-hmm. we can, you know, just, just really, you know, be so narrowly focused on that, that we, we miss the opportunities to find people that can be exceptional talent but it might not be obvious based on the resume. So for you, like, what do you, what do you think they saw? What was that? How did you connect with them? What was that process like? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the first thing I want to um, call out is, is you referenced network equity earlier yeah. um, and the idea of both the network is a source of information, but it's also a source of access. So I don't want to play any pretenses. Um, the CHRO um, at that time at ServiceNow, Pat Waters, I know I just listened to her on your podcast yeah. um, last week, Lars. I'm a huge fan. She had been the CHRO um, at LinkedIn we'd had the opportunity to connect. Their head of DNI had also worked with me. And so I was a proven entity um, from those relationships. And I don't wanna pretend that that was likely a huge part in my ability to go through. Um, But in giving real credit to the talent acquisition strategy, um, they were very, very clear that they weren't looking for rinse and repeat. We were really trying to go from zero to one. And so they were really looking for deep innovation. And one of the big things that they were clear at is if we're doing stuff exactly the way everybody else is, we're probably not thinking big enough. They felt like there was huge opportunity there. And so I think they purposefully did go out looking for non-traditional backgrounds clearly a clear awareness of the HR space and deep empathy for for what that would take. But an equally important was empathy outside of HR, how I was going to be able to influence the rest of the business um, and how I was going to be able to bring some of the latest in research and technology and thinking into the role. Um, And that ended up being a standout. Yeah. And so you're at ServiceNow now, uh, that's, you know, <laughs> unintentional play on words, but, yeah. uh, you know, your role. So, uh, you know, obviously when we introduce you, your, your role yeah. there is head of scaled learning. Yeah. Uh, that's a title that is, you know, pretty non-traditional. I think, uh, most listeners probably 
have an idea of what that might be just based on the words, but you know, haven't yeah. actually seen that job. So remove that mystery. Like what does that job entail? What is your, you know, your, your scope? Uh, yeah. What are the kind of things that you're working on day to day? Yeah. Um, so I look after non-executive development. Um, so that's just all our, our development and enablement offerings at an enterprise-wide level that aren't our VP+. Um, the reason that we call it scaled learning is um, ServiceNow is 13, 13 going on 30,000. Our, our CEO, Bill, announced our, our very ambitious growth goals over the next two or so years. And so we recognize that the big challenge as we think about development and enablement is going to be how do we keep the personalization, in fact, amp it up? Um, and yet do so in a scaled way. Um, that is core to ServiceNow's mission. It's what we do on the product side with um, the workflows that we create. And so the reason head of scaled learning was put in there is unlike our executive development that is really thinking through um, building up and succession around a core, much smaller group um, of our key executives will leave the company. The question is, well, how do we scale um, some of those awesome things? And so. A lot of then what I spend my day um, doing is thinking through exactly that. How are we going to um, basically break this false dichotomy between depersonalization and scale? Um, and I'm really excited about some of the ways that actually thinking about scale in new ways has deepened the kind of personalization we've been able to offer. I'm not taking it away. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, I want to double click there and go deeper and I'll, and I'll frame it for you in terms of what I'm thinking, yeah. you know, the, as we move through COVID and as we're moving into this new shift in terms of how we work and where we work and when we work and kind of what the construct of work even is, uh, I think that as a discipline in HR uh, and, and talent, people ops, however you want to frame it, we're moving from an era where uh, for the most part, it was kind of one size fits all. It was, uh, you know, uh, historical playbooks around how you did X, Y, and Z mm. to a new environment where we're really having to kind of whiteboard and build lots of things uh, from scratch, create things that have never existed for us before. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think to, to an extent, personalize how we think about supporting employees, because yeah. particularly as we move into what for many of us will be hybrid work scenarios and you know we're gonna have you know people in an office people not in an office people never in an office yeah how do we how do we and then people who with different needs people you know until it's safe to go back to let's say school yeah. people who are still teaching their kids at home and so we have all these different employees with different needs and the need for personalization i think is 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 really starting to to peak for us but it's not necessarily something that is that we've been known for, right? It's yeah. not it's not yep. our it's not our happy area. Yeah. So how how do we should like how do you think about that when you're looking at personalization at scale? Like putting those things together probably you know gives gives nightmares to some HR leaders, yeah. but it yeah. but it doesn't necessarily have to. So like how do you frame it for them in a way that uh, makes it maybe more um, less daunting? I, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Um, well. I don't know if this will make it less daunting, but, but I will try. At least the way I think about it is, you know, personalization can mean a lot of different things, but it's just merely giving people the opportunity to um, get what they need when they need it. And the big part of that is a lot of the work early in personalization was around trying to guess what people wanted. So yeah. getting so great with your AI that you could intuit, Lars, what you needed. 
I think we're quickly realizing that like, while there's a lot of cool work happening there, that really isn't necessary as you're thinking about personalization. You can really start by just creating the process for people to opt in and choose to what they want. And so the real challenge then becomes, how do you package the offering in a bite-sized bite size way so that they don't get overwhelmed by choice, but build in moments of choice throughout your system in a way that then scales? And the answer to that is, is digitization for sure. Right, like just we, there, there's no way, even at our scale, that you could go in and ask all of those people if you're not thinking to digitize way what they need. And so I'll just, I know that could sound theoretical, so I'll give you what that looks like um, for us now in a very small way um, in how we scale it. Um, we um, offer our flagship manager development program. Theoretically, historically. Kind of one size fits all one program everybody goes through it here's where you go thanks to digitization this year when we launch um, um we have a little bot on slack that reaches out to every single people manager and ask them a couple of questions um have they had experience with learning before we obviously have information on what their level is when would they best like to learn um what are the things they're most excited to look at too and then we just happen to pair people with exactly the same program, but in groups of similar um, attributes. And all of a sudden, you have personalization at scale because a group of VPs who really want to dig into case studies on with dealing with the same content is going to look very, very different than a group of in, new ICs who are just coming in, who are hoping to um, who are hoping to get a bunch of. Um, just a, um, just a clear set of, of job aids or, or casework around the work. And so right. we've not actually changed what we're offering, but it it's created an almost infinite plethora of options for the uh, employees to choose from. That's just like a tactical example, but, but how we think about personalization at scale, just asking that question on every single one of our processes. Yeah, well, that's smart. I think when you, you know, the, when you think of the term personalization, uh, the the natural tendency might be to think of that down to the individual employee, right? Yeah. And like, are you gonna are you gonna have to like you know design a very custom at the individual level yeah. like that? So it's not it's not necessarily that. I like the way that you reframed it around like having uh, having different uh, possibilities that people can opt into. Yeah. So they can basically it's not you know you're still having you know ten things, but maybe they only need seven of them. You know, exactly. maybe they need, you know, these seven and these two over here or before you didn't really give them that option. Yeah. So, yeah, like that, exactly. I think, is, is really important. And um, and just one more thing on that, Lars, is if you add a bunch of those choices, you actually will get to a unique experience per employee, um, even though you're not. So, for example, if the next thing is then coaching, do they want to opt into six or three months of executive coaching and then add on to that? Would they like a 360? All of a sudden, like I said, people have created all of these paths, but you as HR weren't actually thinking through a million different options. It's <laughs> right. just five or six wisely packaged. And then the power of permutations um, does yeah. the rest for you. That's a, that's a smart way to look at it. Um, you know, I want to I want to talk about a piece that you wrote in June of last year. Um, obviously, uh, going through what we've collectively went through on on many levels of 2020 was seismic. And and you wrote a piece called "Dear New, Dear Newly Activated Black Alley Ally." Sorry, and you know, I'm I want to I want to get your your take on I guess both kind of your your frame of mind in writing that piece, but really even uh, so, I'd love to learn that, but also in terms of where your views and feelings are today, you know, is where, you know, seven months beyond that moment in time when obviously the, the, the conversation was 
at levels that we haven't had uh, globally in years. And now we're seven months later. Like, what is your perspective on kind of the the movement we've made towards uh, more kind of racial justice and social equity? Uh, and, you know, have those newly joined allies stuck around? Mm. Um, lots of great questions in there. Um, honestly, Lars, my thought in writing that was just primarily to find a way to express what I was feeling in the moment, which was both this deep mix of hope and also deep fatigue because yeah. nothing we were talking about was new. I mean, I, I think it came to a new level of awareness um, for the majority of America. But for Black Americans, there was there was nothing new about George Floyd's murder. Um, we've been crying uh, about um, both specifically um, police violence against Black communities and in general um, systemic inequity for generations. Right. Um, and so it was just my attempt of how do I how do I still hold on to hope and yet be very real about honestly my fatigue and deep, maybe some real cynicism around the moment that we're in? And really what that culminated was in a request for people to do what I thought would be different here, which I felt was just stick around, right? It was like, we don't have the answers. It's going to take time to get the answers. And so it really was an appeal um, to that. Um, in terms of how I feel today, um, I think I still I feel similarly torn. Um, I've seen more movement than I ever could have hoped for from um, organizations in terms of real commitment to change, right? Like yeah. and we, we, we can talk to change management, um, new ways to hold themselves accountable. I think boards are asking things of their CEOs that they never have before. And so all of that fills me with, with hope that we are at least certainly trying new things on this old problem, which gives us hope that, it, that, that, that change might be coming. Um, and yet I, I think like a lot of people that none of that change is coming fast enough. I think really seeing the real slowness around some of this movement and the reality of kind of organization pace kick in has been tough. I think maybe even more so one of the things that I've noticed dissipate um, quite a bit is the empathy for the experience of black employees within companies. Um, right when the moment happened, there was a lot of talk, not just about what needed to change systemically, but about how hard that moment in time was to go through for black employees. Um, and while I think that moment in time was hard for all employees. And so I think it was a, a moment of real connection. When I talked, even, even talking to the um, black, um, um, professionals in Silicon Valley, I hear again and again this sense that for us, it isn't really over. The pain is still real. The healing still needs to happen, whereas most of my organization feels like it's moved on. And, and that, that that's painful. And so as I think about my ask of allies and my ask to stick around, um, keep checking in might be one of the things that I'd, I'd love to say to allies today as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm glad you shared that. I'm glad you wrote the piece um, because I definitely found it insightful. And I definitely understand what you mean around like uh, this. All of the events were not new events. I, I think mm -hmm. that the, the global collective consciousness around the circumstances that led to the events and, and the you know, generational impact of, of just broader you know, racism and everything that's been happening, uh, that that peaked in a way that, you know, I, I hadn't seen in my lifetime. And, and hearing your point around, like, 
the empathy and the understanding. I think how do we how do we make sure we don't lose that? Because you're right. I think that there's there's companies that have rolled out uh, more programs. They're they're having conversations at a board level. Um, they're they're bringing in you know heads of DEI that are actually empowered to make changes. <laughs> CEOs are realizing this isn't a person you hire to address the situation. <laughs> like this is every, this is everybody's problem. This is everybody. And it was interesting. I, I spoke with, uh, I did a fireside chat with Josh Burson uh, earlier this week when we were recording mm -hmm. this and he's got a, a HR capability um, assessment that they're, that they're working on. That's kind of a future of work oriented thing. And they identified 98 characteristics that are, you know, uh, necessary in mm -hmm. HR. And they invited, I think, over 4,000 HR practitioners to basically self-assess. So against every one of those criteria, yeah. they would give themselves a one through five rating. DEI was last. Mm. Last. Out of, out of and, and so it's, it's not surprising. It's reaffirming of what you know so well. Mm. And uh, like, how do, we, how do we make sure that, uh, that our our actions and our efforts and our empathy as an HR function kind of mm. don't fade with time until the next event happens, which, you know, sadly by our history will yeah. happen. Um, how do we, how do we maintain that and really try to try to embed that into how we operate as, as individuals and as HR teams? Yeah. Um, so I have the, the easy answer and then the hard answer on, yeah. on both of those. The, I think the easy answer is that, you know, for for millennia, um, stories have been one of the the most effective ways we've developed. Homo sapiens have figured out to build empathy for one another. I, I don't think that's changed in our world. And so, I think the first thing is heads of HR, please be talking to your black employees at some regular frequency. And I don't just mean the big town hall where you gather people together in an awkward way. I mean literally check in, have a one on one with an individual contributor here, a manager there, to keep a pulse on what the experience still is. I think that goes a huge way um, in building empathy. I was, you know, um, literally we look at we look at where we're at and we realize that a key set of stories moved the agenda forward in corporate America in a way that two decades of data had failed to on right. DNI, right? But um, I think the harder thing is that if anyone had figured it out, we'd all just be doing what they'd figured it out. <laughs> Right. We are we are trying to unwind a very difficult and long, painful history, Lars. I appreciate you putting it in context. No one really has the answers. I think the big thing that we're doing differently is we're putting resources to get there. But going back to my research-based idea, I think we all have hypotheses, but nobody knows how to solve this today. Um, and I think for me, that brings a lot of empathy around. We are going to fail in that, but recognizing that as we come in and kind of asking, as we would in research, what's the data that we're really going to be looking at to tell ourselves whether we're making real impact? And will we keep ourselves honest to keep looking at that data until we see it move? Um, yeah. And that's the hard long-term answer on this stuff. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I think your feedback for CHROs, especially for those of you that are listening, you know, checking in with your black employees isn't about uh, sitting in on an ERG meeting. Yeah. Or, 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 or having a town hall, this yeah. is one-to-one -one conversations really know, really understand, you know, in an environment where it's not, it's not an artificial environment. It's a, yeah. it's a real environment where you can have those candid conversations and, uh, and, and learn from them. So 
Yeah, I, uh, I, I appreciate that feedback. I think that's definitely helpful and actionable for, uh, for listeners. Um, what I wanted to, Thomas, I, I appreciate, you know, it's been great learning more about your, your background and your path. Uh, but I want to wrap up with a, a little, a little rapid fire, a little lightning yeah. round, <laughs> uh, just to help listeners get to know you a little bit more. So, okay. uh, try to keep your answers to around a sentence and, uh, okay. we'll drill, drill right in. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. I am creeping your Spotify. What, what will I learn are your top three artists? Sun L musician, Beyonce, um, and black coffee. Okay. Uh, least favorite HR buzzword. This is going to be controversial, but engagement. Uh, <laughs> what would we be without engagement? We I have know. engagement for everything. Happy. You're like, you're dismantling <laughs> HR with that comment. Uh, what is your, I, I, I shouldn't assume that I know this answer, but what is your favorite HR function? Um, learning and development. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, that was the layup, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. If you were not in HR, what would you be doing? Uh, uh, probably running my, running a small little startup. Yeah. Yet again. Yet again. Uh, Yet familiar again. territory. Once, once you, once you've been bitten by the bug, it's hard to let it go. And uh, last question, uh, Thomas, one HR practitioner who you admire? Uh, There's so many, but the first name that comes to mind is Pat Waters. Um, I've seen her lead in lots of different um, contexts, and I'm always impressed how no matter what the challenges are, the employee experience um, remains central to her approach and the willingness to always bet on delivering amazing experiences is the way to drive productivity and performance. Yeah. Well, Thomas, I really appreciate you making time to uh, share your journey and experience and expertise with the uh, myself and listeners. So thanks so much for coming on. Awesome, Lars. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.